Welcome back, dear listeners, to another episode of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. Today, you're joined by your usual foursome, Jack, D.Y., and uh, myself, Daniel, and of course, Mr. Hamstring himself, uh, Lawrence. Now, before we get into the, uh, the, the typical Q&A that we have planned today, some great questions, perhaps just give us a lowdown, Lawrence, as to how the hammy is, uh, is, 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 is at, at this point in time. I know you've gotten a lot of support from a lot of our listeners and everything like that, sort of chi- you know, chiming in as to where you're at with your rehab so i'm sure a lot of people are are really invested in just knowing kind of where you're at at this point in time yeah it's going really really well mate and i suppose i I just wanted to say like i'm very very appreciative of everyone who sent a message or left a comment or something like that I, i got a lot of lovely support and almost to the point where it then made me a little bit embarrassed because like in the grand scheme of life you know it's it's not a huge issue to pick up a bit of an injury like on the same day as I picked up my injury, I had a friend whose family's farm was busy burning like out West. And I was like, you know what? Life could be worse. So it's definitely not lost on me that I'm still a very blessed and, um, you know, very fortunate person in the grand scheme of things. But I know that a lot of listeners will understand how much bodybuilding and this prep means to me. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I just want to say a big thanks to everybody, but no, it's, it's progressing very, very well, mate. It's, um, the range and the strength continues to improve each day. I would say that probably by Monday morning, I was back to walking at my usual speed on the treadmill comfortably. And I think that today's leg session filled me with a, a lot of encouragement because I was able to get a, a really productive leg session done today. So I think like my adductors were pretty much normal intensity. I was able to do two bfr um clusters i guess one on the standing single leg leg curl and then another one doing like a lion leg curl i would have mm-hmm. looked like a complete clown because i was doing the lion leg curl just lying flat on the ground with a cuff around my ankle and the reason for that is because like as you guys will know there's a slight kink in most lion leg curls and because the strain that i sustained is quite proximal even that slight kink just sort of puts my hamstring or the the proximal part of it on stretch enough to cause a bit more pain. So to get a bit more out of the set, I just did it on the flat ground today. And I remember I got some funny looks and I'm sure people were thinking like, dude, there's three line hamstring curls in this gym. What are you doing on the ground? But yeah, that was really good. And then managed to get some very productive sets done with like um, belt squats, leg extensions, like even on the day that I injured it, leg extensions still felt as normal. So all in all, feeling really good. And I was saying to DY off air, I think that, you know, mentally more than anything today was a big relief because I know that like, and even from the beginning, like I knew physiologically the chances of me losing any muscle on my hamstring or on my legs was practically zero because I wasn't going to be out that long. But in prep it's just very hard to accept that you have to take your foot off the gas in certain instances so to just know that i couldn't do everything within my power on those leg days was frustrating and don't get me wrong like it's still annoying not being able to do my usual exercises but at least just getting in there today having a really good crack getting like a nice pump it it felt great so yeah i think that by the end of this week posing should feel pretty much back to normal i've actually got a posing session with joey this saturday in that ridiculous valhalla half natty lighting dy knows so hopefully we'll get some good pictures there but i was also saying to dy off air that i think this morning i woke up at 83 kilos on the dot which is my second lowest weigh in of prep so far and i think it's the tightest that i've looked um which is exciting because we've got i suppose three weeks to pull off the last i don't know kilo kilo and a half at most and then one week to eat some carbohydrates and fill out and um that it's showtime so i'm feeling good man i'm feeling i'm feeling encouraged and yeah just once again obviously you guys and everyone who showed support it it means the world mm, absolutely yeah i think it's it's so nice to receive that sort of support from, from your peers because i think you probably even have other competitors who you might even be stepping on some stage with also reach out just to say hey you know hope this is recovering well but also pull out from your competition so i can be so i can beat you no i'm just kidding but um no that that i think that that support is also you know really really appreciated there but um before we get into today's questions i uh, i thought i would just also throw out a thank you to everyone who's purchased the shirt as well we do have our shirts uh, in production right now so they've been 
the order has been sent off, everything is all confirmed and that is being uh, manufactured right now. So as soon as that is completed, we will be sending them out to everybody. And uh, yeah, we're just super excited to, uh, to get these shirts to you give us your feedback on how you like them. And, and then moving forward, we can always look at, you know, alternative designs and things like that. So yeah, appreciate you guys and girls for, uh, for making that, that purchase and, and supporting us as well. But um, I actually had a, a question from, uh, from our poll and this was actually centered on BFR training. And I was going to throw this out towards the end of the, the podcast, but uh, I thought I would throw this up towards the, the front because I know you did mention Lawrence, that you've been including a little bit of BFR training within your, your uh, you know, this last couple of weeks in terms of rehab. Uh, and I guess the question here was like, do you guys think BFR training, is there, is there benefit towards it? And do you think there's perhaps utility for performing it uh, within athletes that maybe aren't even injured as well? So maybe give us your thoughts, Lawrence, in terms of, you know, whether it actually has utility to, to a bodybuilder. Yeah, so I think from an injury management perspective, I think it's a very useful tool. So the way you need to think about it is that for a lot of athletes and Jack will know what I'm talking about because we recently had this discussion the other day is often the limiting factor for them to bring on a pain in any given body part is going to be load. So sometimes, yes, it's range of motion related or volume related, but a lot of the time people are going to say, okay, once I get to a certain weight, it gets painful. So if we can utilize a tool like BFR, which allows us to create a level of fatigue in the musculature at a lighter load. And then we don't have to load the joint or the tendon or whatever tissue we're talking about as heavily, but we still get a really good stimulus. You know, as far as injury management is concerned, it's a bit of a no brainer. So it's a popular one, you know, for people who have like patella tendinopathies or potentially another tendon issue where they can't do the heaviest top sets you know, using something like BFR can be a really useful tool. But I do think that it can be utilized as just a part of a normal training block as well, because it is a bit of a novel stimulus. So potentially, if you were running like a bit of a metabolite block, or if you were in the final week before a deload, and you just wanted to do something a bit fun and a bit brutal, because I think that deload, the, the week before a deload is a good time to do those things, you know, you might do a, a super set of like a hack squat but then go straight into some walking lunges or you might do a bfr set of leg extensions with like multiple drop sets or something like just doing something hard and you know just really getting in there and just doing some hard training i think that it can be good i would probably caution people using it every single week just because anecdotally i think that you adapt to it relatively quickly when you use it for multiple weeks in a row obviously you could use it for multiple weeks in a row if you were having to manage an injury for that long but if you were just using it as a bit of a novel intensity technique, I think just using it sparingly here and there is probably enough because I do find that there is a point where, you know, you're maybe not getting out, as much out of it using it three, four, five weeks in a row as you are maybe just throwing it in every now and again. Mm, absolutely. Have you, have you like uh, DY or Jack, like ever used BFR training before? Mm. Yeah, I've, I've used it a decent amount, actually. I like to use it on the back end with prep clients. Like, you know, when training, when the, when the chance of injury, like, does increase a decent little bit, maybe they've been doing heavy leg extensions for a while, you're, you know, you're able to drive a decent amount of intensity with lighter load, so it might be able to manage a little bit more of those injury risks. But I agree with Lawrence. It's one of those things that you can't run continuously. You can't really run back-to-back -back blocks for example or maybe on like the last like six to seven weeks of their like as they're leading into stage i might implement some bfr training so then that way it can give like a little bit of a break from doing heavy loads on certain lifts but that being said it's like it's very hard to increase weight on bfr like like for example the bfr rep range that i normally do is 30 20 20 20 with a 45 second rest break um and there's some other ones that are quite similar like 20 15 15 15 you know how hard it is to increase one pin on, let's say, a flat bar bicep curl when you've got to do that pretty much over 90 reps or whatever it might be. Like that's like, you know, you're increasing some, some 
substantial load. So it's one of those ones that the progressive overload isn't really there at all in that movement. And it's more like metabolite work, like what Lawrence said. So like, you know, maybe managing a bit of niggles that come on in the back end of prep or in a dieting phase, you know, maybe you might want to play it a little bit cautious. You might want to mitigate maybe a chance of an injury coming on. Um, so maybe being able to throw that in there to drive up intensity, still get a decent amount of volume within, within like that X amount of time frame, like five, six minutes, you're going to drive a lot of volume um intensity but with that obviously you know it's very hard to progress so i wouldn't be throwing that in as your primary movement for your biceps that's for sure i'd still have another movement in there maybe like let's say preacher curls beforehand or maybe a face away curl something that you can progressively overload or at least hold the load and then maybe throwing that in as a secondary movement if you are to have more sets on your biceps or for example similar as like a quad quad movement like you know you might be able to have a hack squat and then put the bfr in after there Mm, well said, man. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with, with everything that you've mentioned there. And I think like when, when it comes to, you know, BFR, we're, we're just capitalizing more on metabolic stress as our means of being able to create great degrees of mechanical tension. Um, so it's just, you know, therefore we, we essentially use uh, less load in total. And uh, I guess the premise of BFR training is that we are using a, like a superficial cuff, you know, at the top of the limb, essentially to restrict uh, venous return so we know that you know arteries run a little bit deeper than, than obviously veins do veins are a little bit more uh, superficial so when we when we cuff a particular limb it prevents uh, venous return so we get the the increased accumulation of of metabolic byproducts as a result of you know pushing hard within a set and that ramps up the fatigue factor and i guess contributes to you know you could say like henneman's principle right the recruitment of those high threshold mode units whilst not really uh, using a tremendous you know, amount of load. So I think most protocols for BFR is pretty much something that you, that you just mentioned, you know, 30, uh, 15, 15, 15, or, or you know, you, there's so many different, there's, I don't think there's even a perfect sort of uh, protocol there. There's quite a few different ones, but um, essentially just using less load. So, you know, I, I think it's a great strategy for someone who might be, you know, mitigating around some injury and things like that. I've definitely used BFR myself towards the, the back end of a prep just when you know the connective tissue is just not feeling great on on some movements but it's not something that i've thrown into like every accessory exercise that i've you know i'll do in a program it'll be used quite sort of sparingly what about you jack have you used it at all yeah i've dabbled in it in the past uh, more so in my first prep as well actually and yeah i agree with everything you guys said more so a source of additional metabolic stress not really something that's going to attribute overly with mechanical tension. And it can be something mixed, can be nice to mix things up a bit. I think most longer term bodybuilders don't really care too much about mixing things up, but I mean, it's the options there to play around with some BFR if they want to. Mm. It's kind of like, a, it's like, a, it's, a, it's a tool in the tool belt, right? So mm. you, you can use it sort of as, as you need, but uh, moving on to the next question here, it's a little bit more of a light question, but uh Will you guys ever come out with a video version of the podcast? What do we think, boys? Well, look, in complete honesty, we all sit here naked on every episode. So <laughs> it would just be a platform that we'd be able to put that out without violating, you know, probably several laws. I reckon, you know, at least a few states in America, we'd be able to put it up. Yeah. Well, we'd also have you... to monetize it quite heavily too, because like this mm. is... Uh... Yeah, well, I mean, DY and I, like Dan and I, we, we, we already have our only Dan's. So, yeah, that's we're already, we're already fully exposed on there, right? So, mm. yeah. But uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Mm. I mean, if I you mean, guys want to see DY's translucent skin on this podcast mm. and be, you yeah. know, blinded Man, by I've been sitting outside for 10 minutes each day. Don't even knock <laughs> me back. I'm nearly as tanned as all you boys. Come on. Maybe we should just like make a huge run at the YouTube and just we'll upload the last 64 all in one day just join youtube with an absolute splash and then and then go from yeah. there yeah, yeah like, that, I mean, jack that, wouldn't mind editing him nah, either he, he loves that yeah. stuff so like but you might have to like, you know, shave, shave the beard we've got to groom, groom the mo like we've got to make this stuff all looking immaculate every, mm. every week. is that how that works 100 <laughs> percent. Alrighty. Well, moving on to the next question here is, so yeah, this question, coach has me frequently pulling my calories, but I'm not losing weight. You know, what could be the, the reason for this? What do you guys, what do you guys think here? Like if 
if you're hearing this from someone or, or you may be seeing this within one of your athletes where, you know, you're potentially making frequent adjustments to their nutrition and maybe they're not seeing, you know, not seeing as much of a drop each week. What are you usually perhaps attributing that, that to? Let's start with you, Jack. Yeah. So I guess on one hand, physiologically, which is probably the less likely option, if the coach genuinely is pulling them quite regularly, like you could just be adapting to it. Uh, we know that metabolic adaptation can be quite extreme in some circumstances, usually expressed via NEAT. So like non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So that could be one reason. So that's, I guess, not as much in your control. You sort of just either have to increase your expenditure or continue to pull down food or more likely probably, depending on the individual, just going to be a a change, like the weight that you're losing if you are in a deficit is just not being reflected on the scale or your tracking accuracy is not uh, good enough to essentially incorporate those drops in calories. So I guess an example for each of those, like let's say coach drops your, uh, drops your macros, but in order to accommodate for that drop, you have an extra like 600 grams of pumpkin at night because you take out your rice. Then although you are technically meeting those macros, the extra food bulk that you're consuming is then masking uh, the, the drop in body weight on the scale. And then the other option would be yeah, you, you, let's say factor in some sugar-free maple syrup and that is still has partial calories. So you technically you haven't dropped the full allotment of calories that coaches indicated. Mm. I agree with, yeah, agree with everything. There. Yeah. There's, there's one more I'd probably add in there as well. Maybe if the, the coach, like similar to what Jack said, maybe like you've dropped your calories, but then maybe you redo another meal plan with completely different food sources. Like, you know, I have some clients that maybe like once, you know, once you've changed their macros about, all right, perfect. I'm going to redo up a whole new meal plan. So they change a bunch of the food sources and keep, instead of keeping it like similar to what Lawrence might have, Lawrence might have the same meals across the entire prep. And then he might just slowly alter some things here and there and just swap the numbers where, you know, if you have someone, they might be like, all right, well, I know this meal plan has been working for me. Let's alter the whole entire meal plan, have different food sources. Maybe stuff doesn't work for you as well stuff isn't as easily digestible maybe some of the meals might not be as accurate as what you'd want maybe you're using like some scanned barcodes from the store which you know we all know that they can be slightly inaccurate and then once you've accumulated all of those things maybe your calories aren't in that deficit like you know you might hope they would be yeah well, Matt, it, uh, i was just gonna say it does uh speak to how you know the the prep taste buds they get ramped up because like you guys have known i'm essentially eat the same five meals and just alternate depending on a rest day or whatever. But we were a little bit low on the usual high protein yogurt that I have, like on a Tuesday after gym, I'll just have like, cause it's a bit of a weird time where if I don't eat anything after I train and then go to work, I'm then like having nothing for like six hours, but I also don't want to like eat a full meal. Cause then I've had like two meals before 9am. So I just have like essentially a protein feeding where I'll have like Greek yogurt mixed in with some peanut butter just to get my fats in. I and did this see week... you at KFC now that you mention it. I thought yeah, that was your oh, car dude. in the drive-thru. You needed, yeah, protein and fats. That's dude, right. The um the Apple Maps is wild. Like I'm like, oh, set it in for work. Cause you know, I don't, I've only working at 18 months. So some mornings I struggle to find a way there, but yeah, it took me straight through the drive-thru. Right? That's wild. <laughs> It's called being multiple. Hey, shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. <laughs> My Apple Maps. Oh. You just look, look to the right-hand side. There's Jack's Tesla as well. Just... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, be silly. Anyway. He's never had it. Dude, legit. Um, he, tried to, he was like at the ICN show. He's like, come see the Tesla, mate. It's a Honda gets. Mm. Like genuinely, I thought we gave it off for that for that reward, didn't someone? Oh, it? of course. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's why he doesn't have it. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's um, right. yeah. But yeah, like, so I didn't have enough yogurt so i was like oh, i'll just like mix in some of my whey protein that'll be fine so it was like yogurt whey protein and peanut butter all mixed into like this paste and i had it and i was like i can't have this again it tastes too good like generally like it's one thing i've been doing this prep is like once things are starting to taste like a little bit too nice i'm like all right now i can't be doing that i have to keep it bland which is just funny because that i mean i'm sure you boys are listening to that and going yeah, that doesn't really sound that great. But you get to that point of prep where you're just sort of hypersensitive to any flavor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of us were what salivating over chicken and rice the other day when we were doing our poll. So I think we we all understand. We all understand that. <laughs> but I I do think that I mean you, you touched upon it, Jack, in terms of uh, 
I guess the, the adherent side of things. And obviously it's not always, always the case, but I do think that like in prep, your brain can play some bizarre, bizarre tricks on you in terms of, you know, being able to recognize when perhaps you are starting to dip into some of those, what I coin the, the BLTs, right? And I think a lot of my athletes uh, know this term, like the bites, the licks, the tastes, the things that perhaps we, we may consume and just not really be too wary of. So uh, it could be an example of like, you know, cutting up on my banana and weighing out my 100 grams. And then as I'm walking back to the fridge, maybe the actual banana was 120 grams. I cut off the end and I eat it on my way back to, you know, walking back to the fridge or whatever. So I only factored in 100 grams, but I actually ate 120. So it's, I think sometimes just these like little things that we don't take into consideration. And a huge one is, you know, condiments and spices and things like that as well. I think it's, it's really common in, in prep for people to get very, very, very heavy handed with, uh, with salt, right? And obviously salt doesn't contain calories, but hey, if I'm using like mingle seasoning or Nando's peri peri salt or like all these other ones that, that are flavored in that token. And you know, usually when something's flavored, something else is added into their flour, sugar, et cetera. Um, you know, these are things that we can get really heavy handed with and just not factor in, into the equation. And just like you mentioned, Jack, in terms of, you know, perhaps some of our foods that contain a higher allotment of, you know, polyols. So, you know, are we tracking these things correctly as well? Uh, even things like the, the sugar-free gum, the zupa-dupas, like all these things come into equate, you know, into the equation. And if co coaches made a 10 gram pool to my carbohydrates this week, and I just supplement with a little bit more of that sugar-free stuff, because I'm feeling the effects of the diet condition, well, I've just negated the, the adjustment that, you know, coaches made. So I think it's really important to be, to be wary of that sort of stuff. And, you know, truthfully, I think if, if a coach is, you know, I mean, if we can confirm that we are in a caloric deficit and we've made, you know, frequent pulls to the system, I mean, there's only so much metabolic adaptation into play, right? I mean, uh, like eventually we're going to get to the stage where nobody dies of starvation because metabolic adaptation is just so powerful. It's never going to be a thing like starvation exists. So eventually, you know, weight does need to you know, come down. If it's been too many weeks in a row where we're not seeing an adjustment or we're not seeing a, a drop, then that would pose the question of, you know, being like, hey, is, is there any leaks in the system right now? Is there anything that we can recognize that might be contributing to, you know, more intake than what we actually may be, you know, maybe factoring. And I, I think for some athletes, it can get to a point where an athlete might have that sort of, oh shit moment. Maybe they've had, maybe they've gone, you know, multiple weeks in a row and we're not seeing movement. Coaches saying, hey, check the system for leaks. And all of a sudden we're, you know, four weeks out and we've still got X amount of weight to lose. And it's like, oh shit. Okay. I realize I need to cut all these things out and start, you know, bumping up my consistency and my adherence. And now we know, you know, as a product of so many pulls to the system, all of a sudden I'm, I'm adhering to much lower calories. Now I start moving 10 times quicker than what I should. So what happens is I start binning lean tissue and I'm moving too quickly now. So I think uh, a lot, like, I guess the, the, the takeaway here is that it's so important to just be like forthcoming and, and open, you know, which with your coach and, you know, relay that sort of stuff. I think there is sometimes a concern to be like vulnerable for a lot of athletes to, to be able to, to reach out to their coach and say, hey, I did have a bit of a stuff up moment, but it's actually within, you know, your best interest as an athlete. And I'm sure every coach listening to this can, can vouch for this as well, is that ultimately, you know, we're here to be able to support you through your journey and come up with, you know, strategies around around these sorts of sorts of concerns. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's only so many weeks in a row before things start to pose that question of, hey, are we actually hitting what we need to be hitting? Or, you know, is there something in the, in the equation here? But yeah. uh, that's not the picture painted for every athlete, of course, but there are some, you know, situations where that may be, uh, be the case. There are also, was... sorry, you go ahead. Mine's silly. I'll come to it after. <laughs> I was going to mention some spice blends because I find that in prep, like a lot of people will buy, not like the typical spices you get from Coles and Woolies, but like the the mixes, like, I don't know, the lamb roast rub or some other fancy thing. And they actually include sometimes rice flour in them to be as a bit of a bulking agent. So imagine someone on 100 grams of carbs and then they're having 20 grams of this spice mix. And then let's say 10 grams of that spice mix is rice flour because they're just, they're not tracking it because it's a spice mix. 
And then now they're having 10 grams of rice flour on top of their 100 grams of carbs. So it's, uh, and rice flour is, of course, almost 100% pure carbohydrate. So they're, um, they're really taking themselves for a ride there. Yeah, 100%. Like, I, I think as much as this sounds incredibly boring, I think towards the back end of prep where you are so sensitized to sugars, uh, salts, like those sort of flavors, like they're so palatable, right? That I think at the end of the day, if you were even just to pull back on those and just implement like salt as just the standalone condiment that you use, I'm sure your meals would taste kick-ass by itself. Because mm. I can think back to when I was eating like spinach and like I could taste like the sugar in spinach, like it tasted sweet to me. <laughs> and now if I had a, you know, spinach by itself, I'd fucking choke. <laughs> like it's, 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 yeah, it's that wild. Dude, you like in like end of prep, you bite into a carrot and you're like, oh, that is so sweet. Well, let's take the edge off. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say, DC, my main area of concern around that topic is like, let's that hypothetical situation where you're cutting off the edge of the banana and then putting it in your mouth. If you are eating the end of like the, the butthole part of the banana, like the bit with the knobbly bit, I mean, you're a psychopath in my opinion. So I, I just wanted to make sure which end of the banana you were talking about. Yeah. So are you saying that you peel your banana? That's weird. I just thought you eat the whole thing just as like one go. That's how a real man would. But I think it opens a good conversation of, are there any fruit or veg that you do eat the, the peels of? Because I think even in the off season, I'll eat an apple core. Like I'll just eat the whole apple. And then I'll also eat kiwi fruit skin, which I don't think is too controversial. Mm. Well, I've seen DY hoeing, hoeing into a, a pineapple. No, no peel, right? Just, mm. just, like, just, just the top that, that, as well. Just the, yeah. That would be correct if you ever saw me eat a bit of fruit. Um, but the V8 juice, obviously, I can't eat the end of it unless <laughs> I'm, I'm eating a lid of it. Nah. No, mate, I'm already picky as it is when it comes to fruit and veggies. So you best believe they're looking schmick. No apple cores, no kiwi fruit skins, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, do you not kiwi? Do you guys get skin or without? Skin on. I go skin, skin on. on. Yeah. Do you peel your on. apples, DY? Uh, no, I don't. I, but no, DY it. has them in a slinky. That's the only way we eat them in a slinky. <laughs> Throw it. Ask them to throw it in the KFC deep fryer as well for me while they're over there. Crumb it up. Yeah. Um, you know what's a garbage with the, um, with the leaves attached? Because what? What? You know you, the top of the strawberry. Do you eat that or do you cut it off? Cut it off. Nah, I can't. I usually that, cut it off. I, I wouldn't be caught eating the kiwi fruit as well. Not not my taste. You know, mm. it's pretty much apples and raspberries. Maybe a bit of the strawberries if I'm feeling adventurous. Mm. Dipped in chocolate. Exclusively. Yeah. Mate, but I mean, if you're not having berries on your cream of rice, is that fully optimal? Mm, yeah, well, I have raspberry, so I wouldn't know. But oh, yeah. well, there you go. Yeah, no, you're optimal then. Yeah, I'm as you were. About it. Optimize. How good? Um, as next- also, I was going to mention Oppenheimer yeah. was really good. Um, you your boys should it. all go see it. Yeah, as it raises it. another question because you know Oppenheimer, they always talk about like, you know, the the creation of the atomic bomb essentially changed the world. So in a grander sense, what do we think has had a greater impact on society? You know, Oppenheimer's creation of the atomic bomb or the iliac lap pull down. I was about to say length and partials, but you know, we can mm. go with the iliac lap pull down. It probably is the iliac lap pull down, to be fair. It's a more contentious debate, one would argue. Mm. Mm, yeah. Now I'm just walking through the supermarket and I'm just seeing jacked lats everywhere. So, you know, mm. it's surely a step forward in, in human society yeah the destroyer of worlds indeed are you having any uh hummus these days lawrence or is that long gone no no hummus mate i think that was probably a, a relatively short phase because oh, really i'm, so I'm not like about it though yeah i know i think that was just because hudson was opposing me which because i mean it doesn't make any sense mate he's of middle eastern descent and he just had a hard time with me eating the hummus which is bizarre mm. but in the off season, like, cause I'm not really like, even now I have to go out of my way to add in like fats. I just don't consume. I think a lot of us would be the same where like the majority of the food we consume is quite low fat, high carb. So I would always like add in something like hummus or like what I was doing for ages was the pesto. I would just mix in mm. pesto with my final meal. But 
my fats aren't i think what are they i think they're 60 on a rest right 60 on a rest day 65 on a training day and even then i'm having like dark it's chocolate like my or... off-season fats mate yeah well there's well mate you're just mega high carb boy you know yeah uh, but i don't know like i feel like i went through a bit of a phase because when you're coming out of comp all you want is just to add more carbs like i feel like most people would be like yeah pull my fats to 30 like just give me all the carbs because they're more satiating but i just got to a point last off season where i was like dude i can't eat anymore and i think i just wanted higher fats to just give a bit more variety um but i don't know i think there is something to be said with like fats do make you feel a bit sick depending on how high they are like i don't know if in my coming off season i probably wouldn't go higher than like 80 yeah mm. i think, they, I think they, people can be really restrictive. restrictive on on fats though when when calories start getting you know ridiculously high and i think i guess if um if hunger is starting to become that much of an issue surely you can revert to things that do have slightly higher fats as a means of you know pushing up those those calories a little bit higher i think you know often we've talked uh, about the difficulty like in a gaining phase associated with um you know pushing out calories higher etc but I think a lot of these people might still be opting for like the skim milk and the, you know, like the lesser calorie versions. And I guess that's when competitors in their off season can start dabbling with things that aren't, you know, like this, like still having the mission, you know, wraps and they're like the light version. It's like, okay, let's, let's, let's change this big boy to the, the normal, the normal wrap with a little bit more calories there. And, and this might, you know, help us. I find Did when you ever, sorry, Jack, we're really going after it today. I was going to say, do you ever remember when Mike Isratel would like put up, like he was able to get in like 800 carbs a day and he would have like 25 fat? Yeah, I do remember that. I mean, Mike is not the guy when it comes to nutrition because the food that he looks, uh, the food that he like eats is garbage. Like it yeah. is utter, complete garbage, which blows my mind because with everything that he optimizes, I'm like, does this dude eat anything that's not like American cheese and like... Some what do you mean? Mythical zero percent fat chicken sausage, like it's <laughs> shocking. <laughs> chicken sausage and mashed potatoes with oh, a couple of bits dude. of bread. Oh no! What was he doing? We sent it into our chat where he has like the egg white. He calls oh, yeah, it like a white, sad taco. <laughs> oh my days, bro! Uh, but it's like it's like no, it's no in between. He's either having like an entire loaf of bread worth of French toast in the off season. Or then in prep is just like, bro. I don't know how he eats that. Mm, I must admit, horrific. some of the food, some of the food that I've seen as well, look like it's straight out of like a Play-Doh container. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember seeing Milos. Um, he posted some of his journals. He always does it every now and again of like some of the macros that he would eat for like the Olympia. Uh, and it was just crazy. It was like a thousand two hundred grams of carbs or something, and like twenty or twenty-two fats. It was like some ridiculous numbers of like, fuck, this man's eating straight honey, rice, and like it was like ground turkey breast. It wasn't even like anything else. It was just mm. low fat as possible. Tilapia. That's negative fat. Yeah. <laughs> now moving on to our next question here. This is a question in our in our poll, and uh, the question is: I've just binged in my prep. What now? Let's uh let's let's hand it over to you, Jack. If someone has, I guess, just just gone through a binge Probably. episode, and I guess they're in their their contest prep, you know, uh, timeline. Is this something that I guess you've had to manage in the past, or you know, what what would you do in that case with this athlete to to assist in in pushing past this next phase? Hmm. Yeah, so I think binging and prep often requires more of an upstream approach. So I, the work that you put in before the prep starts is often going to assist dramatically in terms of uh, avoiding binge eating in in the prep. I don't think I'm, I know it seems like a co very like a coaching thing to say, but like truly, I don't think any of my clients have have binged and prep. And sure, I could just be lucky. Uh, in terms of who I've had prep and I haven't exactly had like hundreds of competitors prep. So I don't have a lot of uh, clients to, um, to, to say that about, but I truly think that going through a organized pre-prep phase and working with someone for a good amount of time uh, prior to the prep itself can make sure they understand what the prep is going to entail and also ensure that their relationship with food is, is very good moving into the prep. And when binge eating does occur, 
I sort of have a rule where if someone has a binge eating episode and it happens more than once, then the prep is called off. Like I highly encourage the competitor to, to not prep because I think it then just, and sure, I completely respect if other coaches have a different um, way of doing things. That's because everyone has their own methods, but I just don't think it's worthwhile for the post-show experience, basically having binge eaten throughout the prep and then going into the post-show experience uh, because that's going to be even more difficult than the prep itself without mm. those tangible goals there. But I can't, I can't give too much of an in-depth answer than that. Like, sure, you can, you can try and make up the calories. And, and this is why sometimes bodybuilding can be such an unhealthy endeavor when it comes to the relationship with food. Because if someone does binge eat, like you essentially then have to restrict yourself even further to make up lost progress, which <laughs> by definition, like if you ask any dietitian or any nutritionist, like outside of bodybuilding, like that's the worst thing you want to do. Like you don't want to restrict yourself after binge eating. But when it comes to getting on stage, that's kind of what you need to do. You need to make up the ground that you've lost. Mm, absolutely. And I think a lot of the time, you know, I think this, this sort of conversation, I mean, it's, it's so specific to, I guess, the coach and, and athlete dynamic and I guess how a coach might approach uh, an athlete in terms of, you know, managing something like this would be very, you know, bespoken to the individual. But, you know, I think it maybe comes down to just always assessing, um, you know, what, what, what was potentially the triggers and, and, you know, what happened, what can we do to perhaps, you know, eliminate those triggers for the immediate moment. But, I think you're so right, Jack, because it is such, um, you know, uh, an area in which we, we don't really speak a whole lot about, you know, and, and, and mm. I feel like there's no uh, green light or there's no like uh, best defined practice to, to manage that within a contest prep, because mm. like, just like you mentioned, you know, you speak to anyone who works within the clinical realm of binge eating, they're not, they're surely not going to tell you to continue on with something like a mm. contest prep, are they? So yeah, I think majority of, of the instances of, of managing that sort of stuff comes from, you know, the work that you do before the actual contest prep commences. So I guess, you know, preventative rather than, than curative of sorts. But, you know, I think that that, that binging in, in prep is, is common for, for some athletes. Like it is something that perhaps an athlete might, might have occur with, within their prep. Um, and I'm sure, you know, it's, it's some people, some people in terms of response to it, they, they, they quickly learn from it and they realize just how uncomfortable they were uh, as a response to it. And they quickly, you know, find the, the trigger and, and remove that. And then there's others that perhaps those triggers continue to occur. And, and maybe, you know, best practice is to just simply, you know, stop, stop the prep at that point in time um, and, and work on, you know, improving one's relationship with food, you know, beforehand in, in terms of then moving into another, another prep in the future. I think it's also important to define binge eating as well, because like going over your macros isn't binge eating. And a lot of competitors will actually say, I've, I've had competitors say, or just clients in general be like, oh, I, I binged. And then I look at their macros and they've, they've gone over their calories by like 50 calories, which is not binging. Binging is essentially like an uncontrollable bout of, of over, overeating. You lack control in the moment. And often it's also accompanied by like a, forgetfulness about the incident as well like you don't really know what's happened you've just it's almost like you've been sleepwalking um so i think it's important to recognize what binge eating actually is as well but i, I would char characterize it by a loss of control really yes yeah absolutely what about you dy has there ever been an instance where you've had to sort of navigate around that or, or sort of support yeah. through that? I, th I think after you've coached a lot of competitors like there's always little things and and now what jack said is like how bad is the incident so what first thing is like you know ensuring that you have a pre-prep like pre-preps weren't popular five years ago like you know when you look back at it you know every prep was pretty much like anywhere from 12 to 18 weeks and now you look at it everyone's running pre-preps to minimize chances of overeating and stuff like that um and obviously we're running longer preps now as well to make it a little bit more as smooth as possible. But another thing is like, you know, the question is like what Jack said, like how bad was the incident? Was it a binge or was it, Hey, like we had an event on, it went way longer than I expected. So I ate some stuff at the venue or whatever it might've be. I roughly guessed it. And it turned out I was 50 carbs over. I'm so sorry. Like that, mm. like exactly what Jack said, it's not a binge. Like, you know, that's like, you know, trying to do the best in the situation. You've accidentally miscalculated it a little bit, you know? So then you obviously have a chat. Some like, listen, we can't have this again. Um, but then at the exact same time, you know, if they did binge, 
you do need to have that chat like, hey, is this going to actually happen again? And is this an issue going forward? Because then if it is an issue, well, it's probably time to pull the pin. Like, you know, but I always try and have communication with my athletes. Like, you know, if they are struggling, let me know because I'd much rather maybe have a couple of days of high days where it might mitigate the chance of overeating than for them to overeat. And then we've got to pull our calories back further or whatever it might be. Like, you know, you might be able to put a plan in place to actually manage that. Um, so I think communication between the athlete is also extremely important to try and mitigate those kind of things. Another mm -hmm. thing is if they did eat over is, are we behind? Is this actually going to really drastically impact our performance on stage? Like you eat 7,000 calories in a sitting, it doesn't affect you like how it would affect a normal person that's sitting in the off season. Like it's going to drastically imp impact the prep. And, you know, you could actually be multiple, multiple weeks behind because of that one episode. Now it's like, you know, are you actually going to be putting anywhere decent of a package on stage? Maybe it is time to call that. But in, if it's a minor thing, like, you know, maybe the miscalculation of macros and they've slightly eaten over, not a binge. I wouldn't realistically worry about it too much if it's an honest mistake. Now, if it's something that's exactly what Jack said, an uncontrollable binge, you know, then immediately I would pull a dietitian or a psychologist into the situation. It doesn't matter if it's like, oh, I'm not going to do it again. I'm like, all right, well, that's perfect. But I work closely with a bunch of dietitians that are really good, like Aiden's boy, Tyler, um, over at Ideal Nutrition. If I have an issue with someone, I refer them to them immediately. We work hand in hand with multiple clients. It works very nice. And even if it's, a situation that might not happen again, but it has happened, I would much rather have them on hand. They can then help me manage it. If they think it's best not to do the prep, then whatever it might be. But mm. so happened, hasn't had a situation unfold like that. But I think if it was to unfold, regardless, I think you need to pull a psychologist or a dietitian into the mix to see what their point of view is and maybe give a little bit more feedback, which you know you might not be able to give as a registered sports nutritionist. Yeah, definitely. Because I think, let's say, for example, that that does occur and, you know, it means potentially uh, causing some concerns with regards to ability to achieve, like, said conditioning towards the back end. I think if the coach was to solely prioritize the conditioning checkpoint or making sure that person is in prime conditioning to get on stage, it may actually be more detrimental to that person's health, I guess you, you could say, right? Because it would probably involve having to further make an even more assertive pull to one's nutrition, which pull things down further. I mean, it's a bit of a rubber band effect. It might not occur even more. So at that point, it's probably even having a, an honest conversation with, you know, potentially that athlete to say, look, you know, we, we can continue, but if this is something that occurs again, look, it's, it's, it's likely we're going to need to exit the prep and just focus on managing this, this at this point in time. Or, you know, are we, are we happy to continue and, uh, and maybe shave off, you know, the, the, the back end in terms of our ability to, to showcase that top tier conditioning? I mean, that being said, I have seen some athletes, you know, pull it off, look, look, look absolutely immense on, you know, up on stage and, and do incredibly well and have had in some, in, you know, incidences in prep that, that is, you know, very quote unquote, like not ideal uh, in the cases of overeating, et cetera. So I, I guess it's just so individualized, you know, to, to the person as to where they're at in their prep, how far along they are. Maybe if they're a little bit ahead of time, you know, maybe it doesn't detriment them, them as much as someone who is, you know, immensely behind time. But I think this question feeds quite nicely into the whole question we had before, which is, you know, coaches frequently pulling my calories, I'm not seeing a loss, et cetera. Like, I think it always, always comes down to just that communication. And, you know, if someone is in a situation where things are just being, pull, 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 but actually the athlete may not be uh, communicating to the coach in terms of, hey, these are the struggles that I'm dealing with at this point in time, then it's only a, it's really just a snowball effect, isn't it? It just kind of snowballs and things essentially get worse and worse. So yeah, definitely a, uh, a you know, important factor to, to keep in touch with, with one another and support one another through, through the prep. The risk I find a lot of the time is if someone has had a binge episode and then like, you know, you go like, listen, this can't happen again. Um, and I've seen this time and time with other preps is like, then they'll push forward and they'll be like, all right, we're still going to do the show. But then the next time they're not going to tell you if they do mess it up. So then the cat, the coach might pull calories and they just continue to dig the, the person into a hole. And because the client knows now they can't come forward, they've already messed up once. So it is a very slippery slope. And that's why even I reckon if like one time, they do mess up. I think pulling someone like a psychologist and a dietitian into the mix is definitely a good, you know, thing to think of 
if it is healthy going forward and then they can also give their point of view on that mm, absolutely i think there's strength as a coach to recognize where potentially your scope of practice you know where it finishes and where you may need to you know refer outwards uh, or might who you know who might you you can bring into the equation to essentially continue to assist this person through their prep Plus, I think also like if a coach's reaction to someone binge eating is don't do this again, like you need to find a new coach because like that's really poor effort on their behalf. Like it's kind of like telling a depressed person to be happy and cheer up. Like there's more to that went went into a binge than just willpower. Um, and uh, having, I had binge eating, something I haven't really discussed on this uh, podcast, but I've discussed on my TBD podcast is um, back in probably 2014, 2015, I had, binge eating for probably less than six months. So it wasn't, I didn't have binge eating disorder because you have to have it for at least uh, six months, but probably for like three months, like each weekend I would probably binge. Um, and so I can, I can sort of resonate uh, to bodybuilders who do have it, but it's interesting how in my bodybuilding career, I've never binge eaten, never even been tempted. So I think maybe there's something to be said, having had binge eating before leading into bodybuilding that, um, means I can recognize it, maybe even recognize it in clients as well and, and be more preventative in that sense. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's a, an important topic to just normalize as well, because I mean, we are, you know, within the bodybuilding realm, we're taking our bodies to crazy extremes, right? Right. Where essentially we're having this super physiological increase in, in hunger to try and offset the, uh, the deficit and the extremely low levels of body fat. Uh, there are probably going to be competitors that do experience what binge eating is like, particularly more so in perhaps post-show, right? So yeah. something we, we might touch upon more so, you know, as we finish out the, the current season. But, you know, I think it's an important just topic just to keep uh, discussing because I'm sure, you know, many many com competitors and, and listeners might resonate with, with this sort of topic as well. Mm. But um, let's move on to the next question here, which is a little bit more in, in terms of uh, training. But do you think it's possible to tighten a weightlifting belt too much? I see some people struggling to tighten theirs. Uh, surely there's a detriment to just having it, having it too tight. What do you think, Lawrence? Yeah, I'm sure there's a point where it's like, okay, this is just too tight. Because if it's so tight to where you can't actually take in a decent breath to then brace into the belt, which is why it's there in the first place, or if it's so tight to the point where it's actually causing, you know, appreciable pain or discomfort, which is then impairing your ability to then perform your set, then obviously that's not going to be ideal. But I would probably say like most people are probably using it not tight enough. Like you see people just sort of walking around. And I think a generally a good yardstick for you to, to think about it is like, if you can keep your belt on for the whole session, like if you're not, taking your belt off as soon as your set is done it's probably too loose and i would almost go the same for things like you know wrist straps for example like on presses like the point is for it to provide a level of stiffness through the joint or in the belt's case you know stiffness through your trunk to perform the set and then you should pretty much want to get it off straight afterwards because it's not super comfortable to have it on Things like knee sleeves, obviously probably a little bit different because a lot of people will keep those on for the entire session. But that would probably be my recommendation is like, if you're not feeling the need to whip your belt off straight after the set, it's probably not that tight enough. Mm, well, I guess that you could, you could, you could point at the, the, um, the similarity between something like wrist wraps and obviously like knee wraps as well. Like usually knee wraps mm. is something that people are immediately... <laughs> throwing off their, their knees because it's just cutting off circulation. So essentially trying to create that stiffness there. I do see some people who, yeah, it's like they fully need like a, a partner to come into the equation to, to, to tighten the belt for them and then actually get it out of them, get, get them out of the belt as well. I think that's potentially when, when maybe they're leveraging on that point where, you know, it's getting too tight here. Like I think I, I, I for example, anecdotally, I find that, if I tighten the belt to a point where it's that uncomfortable uh, that I can't actually brace properly, now I'm just relying so much on the belt and I'm actually not creating any sense of like, valsalva by closing off the mouth, you know, breathing against against the belt and uh, it, it's not really serving its function anymore. So I definitely think there's a, there's a kind of a middle ground, right? Perhaps a bit of a Goldilocks principle there. Moving on to our next question is... Uh, what challenges do older bodybuilding athletes face? 
what are your what are your thoughts do you want well there's probably like three that i reckon come into play here first one is injuries for example we're we're all crippled with it me, me lawrence you know we're on our way out already and like you know we're like we're, yeah yeah exactly jack as well we're sitting 26 and we're fucking mangled as it is so it's like oh, I speak for yourself mate i'm not as old as you blokes you can't even bend over and touch your toes. What do you mean? <laughs> You're the worst of them all. Um, but obviously injuries, so like, you know, over multiple years of training, um, it's going to accumulate and it's going to cause some issues. And then not only that, um, as you get older, you know, the recovery, the recovery side of things is probably going to be impaired as well. Um, so, you know, you've got multiple injuries, you know, you probably can't push yourself. You've got to work around them as a little bit more so then that's going to impact training a little bit as well not only that um your metabolism does slow down i've noticed with multiple of my older clients they can't get calories like what jack can i'll tell you that right now um there's definitely a difference between calorie intakes between them especially once you do get up to around like that 60 years of age um so you know you've got training you've got um fuel just in general just food injuries which is then going to play into the actual training itself and another one is the sarcopenia as well like muscle mass lost over multiple years. And as you get into the 60 years of age, that's definitely going to start um, playing a factor as well. Absolutely. Do you have anything to add there, Lawrence? Yeah, I think that's all pretty much bang on to be fair. And there are some, you know, oh, mate, DY, he's just trying to cut my grass here. He knows this is my shtick. Um, no, I think at the end of the day, like there's a lot of injuries and in fact, essentially all musculoskeletal conditions like one of the risk factors is just being on the earth for longer so whether it's something like osteoarthritis which i guess is a bit more directly correlated with age or potentially tendon issues because uh, one of the things that we do notice is that you know even before you maybe start to lose muscle mass your tendons will start to lose a bit of stiffness so if they're not able to attenuate that load, you know, you might be getting more so those tendinopathy type presentations a bit more frequently as you get a bit older. Uh, but once again, it sort of reiterates the importance of trying to mitigate these things by still training. Like whenever I see people that are in their like 50s, 60s, 70s still in the gym, I'm just like, you know what? Like this person is going to be so much more mobile, more functional, and, you know, to, I suppose, divert a little bit from just bodybuilding and getting swole, like ultimately that's what it keeps people a lot happier because if they're able to stay more mobile, more independent, they're able to get out in the community a lot more. They're able to keep doing social interactions with their friends. Like how many older people, the reason why they see such a steady decline is because their baseline function gets so poor to the point where maybe they can't get up the stairs to the bowls club anymore okay so then they're losing not only social interactions and social connections with people but they're also losing a form of exercise and you can see how it just snowballs from there so i think that you know as you age it's even more important to keep up the resistance training and i'm a, a massive proponent of that with a lot of my patients and it's a an area that i'm quite passionate about but i guess as far as like a, a bodybuilder per se like other things you might want to think of is like skin quality. Like if you do start to get a little bit more wrinkly than some of the young whippersnappers, you know, that's going to result in a bit of a different look on stage where once you get into really good conditioning, you might have a bit of loose skin and that sort of thing. But with that said, you can still see some guys where, you know, like they might still have a bit of loose skin, but they can still get in good nick and they still look wicked on stage. So I don't think it's necessarily something that's going to hold you back altogether. And to be fair, a lot of the guys who are competing like in these masters categories don't look their age because they look freaking unbelievable because they've been weight training their whole life. So I think it's a bit of a two-way street. Mm, absolutely. It's such it's such an unfortunate truth that like our bodybuilding community is such a, a minor, minority when it comes to, you know, people in terms of you know activity and and uh, generally the the individuals that you see on stage that might be mature mature bodybuilders or physique athletes or, you know, figure athletes, et cetera, that that level of physical activity is such an anomaly for general population. Like it's, you know, general population will look at that individual who exercises up till they're 70 years old. And it's like, oh, as if there's some sort of genetic, you know, anomaly or something like that. But realistically, they just kept active. They just kept exercising throughout the entirety of, of, of their life. And it's actually the majority of individuals that, that stop exercise or perhaps just don't exercise enough 
who are you know at this greater risk of, of seeing this decline and uh, i look at i look at it from the premise of just a complete loss of independence by just not being functional by just not being able to be active move you know so that's why i think of and i'm sure a lot of athletes and and, uh, and coaches can attest to this but you know you look at the longevity of of yourself within the bodybuilding realm and even though maybe the the likeness of you competing up until you're you know 70 years old or whatever uh you, you're still going to be incredibly active you know right up until until the very end essentially so uh yeah, yeah. i think sorry what were you going to say jack i was just going to say and we can i think everyone can look at their own families and be like for us like we're probably looking at our grandparents maybe for our older listeners they might be looking at their parents but we can look at your look at your family relative who was active there growing up or continually active their whole life and then look at your family member who wasn't like chances are there's going to be a fairly stark contrast there in terms of their mobility and their functionality absolutely mm. absolutely well uh this is the last question today a little bit more lighthearted to uh finish up today's podcast but uh what is something that you're wasteful of when it comes to spending? It might be like just a daily spend, something that you spend on uh, on daily that you think is wasteful, but you you do it anyway. Let's start with you, DY. Ah, you're gonna pick me. Eh? Shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just buy unnecessary shit 24-7, and that's the issue. Um, so don't ask to see my spendings account each week. But if I had to say one thing, uh I probably could save a lot of money if I went to a cheaper butcher. I normally go to a decent butcher near mine, which tends to charge an arm and a leg. But that being said, it's good shit. So I keep going back. But I definitely think I could probably save about 50 bucks of about the 100, the 120 um, by going to a different butcher. But hey, if that, you know, I guess that's technically wasteful because I could definitely save it. Mm. At least you're supporting. But I support local, you know me. Yeah, exactly right. I'm a good citizen. You can always justify it. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Uh, what about you, Lawrence? Yeah. I mean, like I'm not a super spender in the sense where I'm like always buying new clothes or new this or new that, but <clears throat> I wouldn't say I'm like a super diligent saver in the sense where I'm like, oh, I don't need that. It's not essential. No, I'm not going to spend it. Like I know Jack is like very, very on top of it. So I, I would say- I wonder what he would splurge on, you know? I wonder. Yeah, yeah. John um, West tuna instead of the home brand. A, th- a third <laughs> microwave for the house. No, no, no. He can yeah. fish for his fish, right? So that's not even relevant. Yeah. yeah. I would say that, like, in the off season, I would say food. Like, if Gemma and I are going out, I'm, I'm normally like, oh yeah, like let's just get it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty loose there. But I would say that sometimes I, I do question that the amount of money that goes towards like the streaming services that i use it, it does add up to be quite a bit mm. but i like it. it it provides me entertainment and like i just wish i could consolidate them all because it's not like i'm using a whole lot of it but there's just like certain things that i can only get on one streaming service and yeah when it when it gets a bit busy i'm like oh there's like four or five but i'm only watching like one show or one thing on each of them so yeah, I might go the the streaming services. Mm. Good one. What about you, Jack? Yeah, so for me, I would actually say food. There's not too much to think about. It's like it's either I've got my gym membership and I buy food. That's about it. Mm. <laughs> so what are you no, splurge on? What are you wasteful when it comes to food then? Because I can imagine from what I've seen in the photos, like you're already buying hot, like pretty much home brand flour and you know all that stuff so yeah there's there's not too much to save i think if i really wanted to save more i could like go to the markets like tierra does buy my veggies there but i don't even eat a huge amount of vegetables at the moment just because i'm in the off season and it's not practical to do that so yeah what Uh, was the last thing you bought just because you wanted it i was actually going to say i I bought these um these ten dollar slippers from amazon Oh my <laughs> days, mate! I um, oh, they gave me, up, but they tight, didn't man, have I'm any open, open toe slippers, believe it or not. So I had to go on See, Amazon. I'm walking around dripped out in these Peter Alexander's baby, just yeah. walking on clouds. <laughs> Tax deductum is check-in clothing, don't we? Put the DY 100%. on the front, you know, embroidered. No brainer. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you, DC? What a- um, so I. We we order coffee every every morning 
beer uh, Uber Eats. So and it's like it's like a good you know twenty two dollars or twenty dollars boom for, for a coffee. And so you don't you don't want to work out how much that, that equates to in spending every year for uh, for coffee. Not that we've done it for an entire year straight, or, or nor do we do it you know every single day, but. It's uh yeah I mean that shit adds up right and it's not until you 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 think back and you actually recognize what you spend on some things here and there and I guess like at the end of the day you have to enjoy your life but uh yeah it, it's funny I, I uh, challenge you dear listener to, to just re- reflect back on what a, what is a guilty pleasure of yours where is something that you're you're wasteful of and um, yeah you know, is is it worth the spend but uh, that is basically everything for today in terms of the podcast. If you love today's episode of the BDU podcast, give us a subscribe and a five-star review. And we'll certainly see you in the uh, next episode.